Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining us this week is David Pryor. Now, David Pryor is the writer and director of The Empty Man, last year's epic horror movie for adults starring James Badge Dale as he falls down a rabbit hole that involves secret societies, missing identities, an urban legend called The Empty Man, and so much more. It has as much DNA with Angel Heart as it does with Candyman, as it does with The Ring, just mashing things together and becoming something totally its own. A portentous, amazing, sprawling piece of mystery filmmaking that locks you down for 140 minutes. Now, unfortunately, The Empty Man was dumped by Disney and Fox, and we're going to get into that with David Pryor. Because you can watch it now on streaming, but you should have been able to watch this on the biggest screen possible when theaters were open and COVID didn't basically decimate uh, that experience. But right now, the only way you can watch it is in your living room, and you should do so immediately. And uh, for the next, I'd say, 105 minutes, we dive into David's career as a behind-the-scenes DVD extras kind of mastermind and what kind of fingerprint he left on that entire piece of film history, and then how The Empty Man came to be, and then what happened to it with its release. Now, just a little note, this interview almost never happened. Um, We had it scheduled for a few weeks ago, because we had reached out after loving the movie and just wanted to talk to the man behind it because nobody had really done any press because of the way Disney and Fox had treated this film. And we found him. We reached out through his agent and manager, got connected with David, and he was incredibly warm and kind and was like 100% on board with talking to us. But then the snowpocalypse in Texas happened, and not only did uh, Martin and myself get shut down you know, we lost power, we lost water, we had pipes break, it was just horrible. David was actually in Texas, in Austin, when the uh, snowpocalypse hit, and we were supposed to do the interview together, and it just obviously didn't happen because, you know, his priority was getting his family and his children back to uh, their home safely. But now, uh, we were able to reschedule for this week so that we could all sit down and talk about this movie that he made that we love, and we're going to provide that to you uncut starting now. During the storm, it was crazy here, right? Just a nuts time. It was completely absurd. Uh, we, thankfully, we were, um, we were inside the one little area that didn't lose power. So the hotel across the street from us was black, was dark. And all their guests were sleeping in the lobby of the hotel we were in. And, um, but we didn't have water. We lost oh. the water for like two days. It was on and off. It's crazy. I was, um, I'm on a, I think the same power grid as a hospital. So I never lost power, um, but lost water for four days. Um, and it was yeah, just. We didn't start shitting in the pool down at the, at the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing the ice scoop into the back of the toilet and like melting that there and then like trying to make things work and yeah. like, eating cold hot dogs, just feeling like a complete loser. But, you know, as far as the snow itself goes, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm from Massachusetts. I mean, this was, what I saw there on the roads and everything was not particularly apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. It really didn't 
certainly didn't seem to justify the signage on like on the CVS that was open that had that had power had lights on and everything and a sign that said we're closed for the safety of our employees I'm like what what happened to, <laughs> what I, I don't get it I, I mean that's one thing if the power's out or if this or if the roads are so bad or whatever but it was like we managed to get there I don't know it seemed weird to me yeah it was I grew up in Indiana and then lived in Ohio after that. So we had plenty of snow. And then I lived in Atlanta when we had a uh, snowpocalypse there um, where the entire town shut down as well. We had a seven day car pile up on the main interstate, just seven days long. <laughs> it was. That's no. going to be right because it's like, that just doesn't happen there. So nobody's used to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, we had, we had five ice trucks for all of Atlanta, <laughs> for the whole place. So it was kind of a nightmare. I'm from Philly, so it's equally weird for me. It was just like, uh, this is it. Four inches shuts down an entire state. All right. Nuts. And, and, and the way that, I mean, I used to go, you know, trudge to work in worse weather than that. I just, it seemed odd that the work ethic had been so devalued that like, oh, my safety, I can't go to work. Like, that just shocked me, but you know, particularly when there are people starving, like there's people out there that are keeping, you know, they're keeping their food in the yard because their power is out. And it's like, there's a store six blocks away that has power and product and you won't open because you're scared of this ice. I, I don't know. It, it was a sad statement to me. Yes. Yes. I did meet some very nice people there though. We did find a Seven Eleven that was open taking cash only and had, I, and apparently a lot of people had figured that out by the time they got their product up to the counter because there was just ice jugs of ice cream and stuff left all over the store, right? They must have just realized, oh, cash only and dropped what they had. Oh, wow. So we didn't have any cash either, but this very nice woman saw what was happening and saw that I had kids and figured out a way for me to Venmo her and give me 30 bucks in cash. And, and then her son said, welcome to Texas. And I was like, all right, that's a, that's a good little welcome. Yeah, we had a little like group, like... Jacob and myself and some other friends, it's like a constant check-in on each other, you know, just like, all right, who's got water? Who's got power? Who's got, whis who's got whiskey, you know, and it's like keeping that, you know? <laughs> it was a mistake to drink all the whiskey during the first night. <laughs> just going to say that. Yeah, nothing for that too, yeah. <laughs> but uh, thanks for joining us because uh, yeah. we're here to talk about The Empty Man. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, why don't we start just with you first as a filmmaker? Um, because you know the 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 story goes, or I guess your as your career goes, you were a behind the scenes featurette guy for like a while, correct? Like working with uh, a lot of companies like Fox and everything, and like even uh -huh. helped Ravenous. Uh, come to blu-ray and stuff like talk about your career for a little bit well it happened um you know i was a behind the scenes guy for a lot longer than um anticipated although um i did <laughs> i do once once we had uh the success of rap and then fight club right after that i was tributary and that's exactly what happened um because it just ended up surprising everybody, you know. So it was so ravenous came about because I had um, been asked to. Okay, so <laughs> I'm trying to make a long story as short as I can. Um, when I was a, I was an alien fanatic, 
when I was a kid. I saw it when I was 10 years old, opening weekend at the Egyptian theater. Um, and it was, aside from Star Wars and until Raiders, it was the movie that kind of dominated my every waking moment. I designed my own you know, costume on paper and I was fixated on that movie. And, um, and I, so I knew that there was a lot of music that was, that was in the final mix that wasn't uh, composed for the movie. It was 10 track stuff from another Goldsmith score called Freud, which I, you know, in the previous, in the early days before the internet, there was, you had to really dig to find information like that. So, um, so I tracked down an out of print copy of the LP and I put together my own alien complete um, cassette tape. And so friends found out and I would share it with them and make copies and stuff. And so years and years later, um, I know the guy who's putting together the alien DVD for Scott Free and he asked me to kind of come in and reconstitute the, that isolated, for an isolated score track, which I, which I was happy to do. And through doing that, got to know some of the people at Fox Home Video, um, brushing past a lot of non-essential details. Um, the movie Ravenous came out at around that time. And I, I just, I saw, it was, it's funny, it's, it's got a bit of, you know, deja vu about it, but I saw that horrible trailer and I thought there's no way that Robert Carlyle coming off of The Full Monty and Guy Pearce coming off of LA Confidential and Antonia Bird, who'd made some really interesting, unique, independent movies, made that movie with Rob Zombie doing a cover of I'm Your Boogeyman. And like, it just made no sense to me, that trailer. So I took it on faith that this was being mismarketed and ran out to see it and fell in love with it and dragged everybody I knew to see it. We chased it across LA as it was vanishing from theaters. <laughs> I went to Fox and said, um, you know, you guys don't obviously don't know it. You don't know what to, nobody knows what to do with this movie, but I think it's really special and interesting. And if you give me a little bit of money, I'd, I'd love to put together a special edition. So, you know, given that it was a little bit like the Wild West, nobody really knew what DVD was going to be. They kind of knew what they wanted it to be, but it was still kind of in its formative years. They, people were willing to take a chance. And so I went off to England. I did, my only goal was let's just throw some shit on this disc. And so that somebody can, will pick it up in tower video and go, I've never heard of this movie, but it has three commentary tracks. That's gotta mean it's something, right? And that's what happened. It ended up selling a lot more than they expected. Um, they had to go into extra printings and there was some demand for it. And so then the question was, do you want to do another one? And I, I said, uh, what do you have coming up? And I looked at their list and I was like, I don't, I don't know what Fight Club is. I'd never heard of the book or anything, but I was like, I really want to meet David Fincher. So I'll do that one. And um, wait, and just, just, just to be clear, like, were you partially behind like that crazy double disc special edition of fight club that was like brown paper packaging and everything because yeah, that I was like a prized possession in the early dvd days i still have it yeah me too <laughs> yeah, that was that was mine um i remember um you know I, obviously i mean i wouldn't have done it if david hadn't approved but um we had one phone call and he said you know he just kind of said go and I went, I disappeared into a basement for four months, cutting together all of that stuff. And I was kind of trying to do the, you know, cause I, I cut my teeth on, you know, I grew up on Criterion Laserdiscs, right? So the idea of the special edition had already been formed in my head, but it was, and not a knock on Criterion at all, but it always felt to me like there was a Criterion version of a movie that had yet to be made where, um, I don't know if you remember, like there were TV shows like That's Hollywood and stuff growing up. And every time they would show behind the scenes footage, 
there was an assumption that it wasn't interesting to hear what the people were saying to each other. So they would have a voiceover or they'd have music or whatever, and you'd see zoom ins on clapper sticks and you'd see people moving around, but you wouldn't hear what they were saying. And I always thought, get all that crap out of the way. I want to know what they're saying. I want to hear them actually making the movie. And so my, the whole approach was, throw, we're going to use as much of this B-roll as, as we possibly can, where we can hear what, you know, when David comes up between takes and he's telling Edward Norton to go a little faster or whatever the thing was, I wanted to hear all that stuff. And so for four months, I put together all of this stuff and I came out of it literally not sure, 50-50 on whether anybody was going to like it or hate it. And I handed, handed it to the studio and covered my head waiting for them to start throwing rocks. And I was really half convinced Fincher was going to nix it all and, and hate it. And thankfully, I was completely wrong, and everybody really liked it, and it ended up selling a lot. And so, yeah, but that was a that was a formative experience for sure. Yeah, because then, I mean, you've worked on quite a few Fincher movies from then, correct? Yeah, well, when Panic Room, um, there were a couple of things that near misses that came up uh, after that that didn't quite happen. But then when Panic Room was coming up next, I think it was, um, I had been doing a few other things in the meantime. It was three years later. And um, I got back in touch and said, hey, you, want, you know, can I come too? And he, he very gratifyingly uh, invited me along. And so that became another huge, that was supposed to be a four disc set. It ended up, I wanted a disc for every level of the brownstone. Awesome. <laughs> but we ended up being limited to three. So anyway. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then Zodiac was after that. And then, you know, it was just one of those things. Like I, I loved working with him and, and he obviously felt like he was getting some value from what I was doing. And so we just kept going. It's interesting to always talk about, you know, folks like you and like, say, um, there's another guy kind of, cause you were, I guess, coming up in the prime of like when DVD was really, and like special features and, and special editions were really becoming a thing because that was also during the boom of like anchor Bay and guys like Jay Douglas who were recognizing like the value of these back catalogs and stuff and putting them out and acquiring rights and things like that. So it's weird to, to sit here and think is like you toss these ideas out there, but that, I mean, the releases you're talking about were formative kind of touchstones in that home video revolution. Yeah. Was it, it was a, it was a shorter window than I realized, you know, it's like somewhere in the back of your mind, you have to, you, there's always an awareness that the moment that you're in might feel like it's going to go on forever, but you know, it's not. And I remember hearing, you know, studio executives salivating over the fact that, that home video sales were increasing 20% a year. And I was like, well, you know, that's not going to last. I mean, it, it can't just by virtue, you know, just, it's a simple matter of physics that can't last. So, um, so I knew there was a kind of a, a ceiling, but I, I don't think any of us anticipated that it was going to just kind of crash and end as, as quickly as it did, or at least as, as suddenly as it, as it seemed to. But during that little window, yeah, I mean, if there was a ground floor, I got in on it. And I, there was enough freedom. There was enough, you know, it's great when studios have something in their hands, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to kill it yet. And when <laughs> When DVD was just kind of starting out with when Ravenous and Fight Club and, and through to like um, Planet of the Apes and Master and Commander and the Fly and a couple of other ones that I did. Um, by the time I was doing those later ones, I had already kind of um, at least announced that my, my instincts and tastes were at least a little trustworthy. So I was given a little bit more 
as the reins were starting to kind of get tightened up for other people that were just coming in, I still had a little bit of freedom. But in that early days, nobody knew what to do. And so they were looking for somebody to show them the way. And I was like, here, I'll do it. And um, me and a couple of other people, it wasn't just me, but you know, who, those of us who were there at that kind of nuclear moment will always remember it as something that was special and doomed. Yeah, and then 19 editions of Evil Dead 2 later and it died <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. off. <laughs> How many versions of The Exorcist do I have to buy? Yeah. yeah. I love it, that three disc set for um, Master Commander. Oh, uh, it's just that was I remember when I, I bought that when it first came out that's that's beautiful I, I love the packaging too yeah the packaging was was um, a miracle that little version was um, you know when Peter Weir is working on your when you're when you're working on a movie for Peter Weir people tend to get out of your way um, and also that particular movie was Tom Rothman's passion and he ran the studio so all I had to do was say oh well, let's call Tom and suddenly all problems would get solved. So <laughs> that's awesome. Whose idea was it to put all the Planet of the Apes movies in Caesar's head? <laughs> I, I can find out. I'm sure. That, you know, <laughs> Report back. We're going to need answers on this yeah. one. <laughs> I had that set. And it terrified me in the middle of the night at like 2 a.m. when I got up to go to the bathroom and I thought there was an actual like animal in my living room. I was like, what the fuck is going on? I was like, oh, yeah, I bought this. I spent money on it. It's like the iRobot head. That thing is pretty terrifying. Too. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, can we talk about AM uh, 1200 a little bit? Your short film that frankly, is almost like the precursor to, to Empty Man and how that came about. It's yeah. kind of like we did another interview for an episode that's coming up uh, with Robert Harmon, um, who did like The Hitcher and Highwaymen. Uh, but he had made a short film called uh, China Lake, which um, almost felt like a precursor to The Hitcher, kind of like a dry run. And, and watching your short film, I had a lot of the same feelings as like being like, oh, he's working this stuff out and getting his way to the empty man. So can you talk to, about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd like to see Harmon's uh, short. I, I didn't know about that. Um, so while, as I mentioned, I knew that this kind of um, side street of, of, you know, DVD special edition producer um, was potentially a, um, a major uh, um, roadblock toward my real ambitions. Um, I, for the very first time in my life, I couldn't give it up though, because it's like, I grew up poor. I never had any money. And, and suddenly I had a little bit of money and I could, you know, um, afford to make a film at the time. Remember, you know, video technology was not, still not up to snuff. Nobody was really shooting digitally at the time. And I wanted to make an announcement, which meant Anamorphics 35, you know, Panavision and the whole thing. So I saved up a little money working on Lemony Snicket and, um, and ended up, uh, so I wrote this thing. I mean, I, I've told the story before, but I'll, the short version is I was working on a, on a um, PBS documentary show called Highway 93, or it was called Great Drives, but Highway 93 was the episode. And somebody, we got up to, Mon to the, just across the border from Montana into Canada and somebody had to drive the picture car back and nobody wanted to they always wanted to get on a plane and go home and so i volunteered to drive the jeep back to la but i took the pacific northwest route and then down the coast and as i was going through idaho washington kind of parallel to canada 
I had this weird experience that I wrote about in the uh, packaging of the DVD where, you know, it's, the world is different when you've been driving alone in the dark for hours and hours and hours and there's nothing around. And if you turn your headlights out, it's black and you really can't see anything. So um, it, was in, it was one of those nights and I was trying to find something on the radio to keep me awake. I was trying to, you know, lay down miles and um, it was probably about three in the morning. And I heard a snap of a snippet of a broadcast poking through the static. And it was one of those old analog radios where you could fine tune the signal. And I kept trying to find these little words that would burst through this ocean of static. And it, there was something about the quality of the voice that sounded uh, distressed, but I didn't think it was a, it didn't sound like a radio drama, but I did hear the call letters of a radio station and then it was just gone. And then about two hours later, something whipped by in my peripheral vision and I pulled over and backed up and it was a sign with the call letters of that radio station and a road with a tower and the red light blinking up in the distance. And I was like, that's scary and kind of a good basis for a story. So later I had this, uh, I had a, I got the ending of the thing from a dream. I had that idea. I kind of bashed it around for a couple of years before I figured out what the, what the script would be. And then, so I decided I had to make something because I was getting, I was atrophying <laughs> working on other people's movies. And uh, the idea was the kind of, the stuff that I missed in horror movies at the time was the sort of, um, you know, the cold on the back of your neck, the kind of the dread and, and anticipation and, and all that that you used to get more in movies, but at that time had been more in the province of video games. It felt to me like Silent Hill 2 and, and games like that were were the custodians of that kind of experience. And I wanted to try to capture, or at least reclaim some of that territory for cinema and at least show that it, that it could be done. And so I prevised the whole movie because again, I, was, I think I was working on Blade Two and, and Panic Room at the time. And in my downtime, I, would te I taught myself 3D Studio Max and figured <laughs> out how to do this animatic. And, and it was all about the sound design. So I, I remember running it past some people and the animatic is just hopelessly crude. It's really embarrassing. Uh, I mean, it's, there's no anima there's no figure animation, you know, so the main character just kind of skates along on one foot as he moves through the spaces. But I did a lot of work on the sound design and the music. And some of the responses I got were the people, I could see people leaning in and getting involved, even though all they were looking at was this really crummy crude animation. So that, that was a proof of the concept as well. And then, so we finally, you know, finally made it and, um, and it did what I wanted it to do. It got, you know, it was supposed to, it was designed to sort of be an entree or, you know, as, as they say, a calling card. And, um, and it was, so, I mean, I, I don't, you know, stop me if I'm blabbering, but is, does that answer the question? No, 100%. I mean, cause I have, uh, one of my buddies is, um, Evram Ursoy uh, from Fantastic Fest, who programmed it for the the Duke Mitchell Film Club, and he he was one of the ones who put me on to to Empty Man as well. Is that he he uh, kept ranting and raving about how great even your short film was, um, so that made me kind of seek it out as well. Uh, I remember hearing hearing, Noel, hearing Knowles. Uh, somebody tried to get uh, Harry to program it for for Buttonumathon. I think is what it was. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, or he, somebody had mentioned it to him and he called me up. He got my number through a mutual friend and asked if, if he could show it. And I was like, of course, I'd be thrilled. And then um, I never heard back from him. And then I heard through the grapevine that 
because the film had been accepted at the, was it the Austin Film Festival, I think it was, that suddenly it wasn't, it wasn't going to be an exclusive. And so he didn't want to touch it anymore. Like, <laughs> oh, well. That so sounds like something douchey he would do. So <laughs> the, uh, the video game thing you mentioned, I, I, when we were discussing the film on our, our episode for the podcast, um, I was definitely getting vibes of the Dead Space series as well in, in Empty Man. I think especially the religion, um, the, the Pacific society of the idea of, of, of nothingness becoming one. You know, I was actually replaying Dead Space last night to get ready for this interview. I was just getting in that, that mindset. But I think I didn't thought of the way that games, especially that era from like 2000 to like 2008 and 9, they're really getting that mood down with, with horror trappings with the graphics and the sound design and, and all of that. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's probably a function of the fact that that kind of uh, experience, the kind of, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck going up is a function of subjectivity so if like the more um the more catalyzed the relationship between the audience and the main character the more likely that the that the audience is going to be taking on there's a lot of interesting work actually about how to get audiences to identify with a particular type of protagonist and the kinds of experiences that protagonists have to be seen going through so that the audience can then digest it for themselves. But it's in, in the nature of video games that they can't force you to move if you don't want to. So they have to be creating a, an ambience. They have to be doing something while you're standing around, you know, getting your chips or whatever you're going to be doing. And so there's a kind of not only the obvious subjectivity of being a first player, you know, first person kind of experience, but also the fact that it has to have atmosphere or there's nothing. And so, yeah, I think that I love Dead Space. I played that a lot when it first came out. Oh, yeah. I haven't played the, I didn't play any of the sequels, but I liked the first one. I would recommend two. Three is just kind of the action one. It's, it's, it just kind of loses all of that. It's fun, but it's a whole other thing. I'm a FIFA guy myself. <laughs> but I, uh, I did want to ask you a question before we kind of move on to uh, The Empty Man itself is that you described working in behind the scenes like featurettes as, as you were beginning to atrophy almost and, and you wanted to get out and, and create more. But I, I did wonder, even kind of reading up more about your career, how much working on those movies acted as a sort of film school into itself and how those experiences might have even translated to being a director. Yeah, if I mean, it would, it would be, um, you know, it would be obtuse to think that you can go through an experience like that for years and not learn things. Of course, I, I learned a lot. One of the things I think I learned more than anything was not to be intimidated by studio executives because when you, when you, when you meet them up close in those kinds of circumstances and you see the way that they talk to even very prominent, you know, A-list directors and you see the kind of stuff that, people of, the, of that caliber go through, it kind of, any, any, any opportunity or any reason to be, you know, to walk in with your hat in your hand kind of goes away. So I, I, it, was, it was edifying for that reason. Um, the other thing is, you know, you, most directors never, at least the ones that don't come up, it's funny how a lot of directors don't sort of come up through the ranks, or at least not anymore. It happens, it must, but a lot of people kind of jump into directing either out of school or 
because they've doing, been doing commercials or something like that. And so they don't spend a lot of time on sets seeing how other directors do the job. Um, so everybody's kind of got their own, they've just figured out their own path through it. And it is pretty interesting to watch the way that David Fincher works versus the way that um, Michael Bay works <laughs> versus the way that, um, you know, Tim Burton, like some of the other people who I was able to observe up close and you kind of, you know, um, digest. I mean, not, you know, it's not something you can take so much, so much of it comes out of your own nervous system. You know, it's like the relationship that you have with the crew or that you, that you cultivate with your cast is based on specifics of who those people are and what this movie is and who you are. So it's not like the kind of thing that anybody can really teach you. And I don't think you can learn it by watching other people because it's like, I mean, I'm sure there's a really great analogy in there. Let's just pretend I found it. So there's, <laughs> there's a way to, um, there's a way to see what other, what you can get away with asking for. Like when I've seen, I've, I've seen things like, I remember for some reason when I was younger, having these kind of crazy ideas about what you could and couldn't ask of an actor. You know, they tell you all kinds of crazy things. I mean, I, I was a child actor and then they, you know, when you go to acting classes and things, they, they're, give you all kinds of rules. For example, um, never ever, a director must never give an actor a line reading. And so you find, you, you know, you could end up in a situation where you're stumbling all over yourself, wasting everybody's time on the set for half an hour, trying to get an actor to say something a certain way, just because you won't come out and tell them how you want them to say it. And one thing I've noticed that really in smart, inventive, successful, um, secure actors, are like, give me a line reading, please. You know, like they don't want to waste anybody else's time. And they don't, you know, it's like any good actor is going to take a line reading and figure out how to make it their own. So anyway, it's just that kind of thing. It's like, it just, you, you're just getting practical real world experience. It's not academic. It's not what they talk about in books. It's not in school. It's, this is how the real professionals are doing it. And so you can see, you know, you just watch other people's dynamics. And it's great from a kind of fly on the wall perspective because I've got no skin in this game. I can't get really in trouble unless I'm standing in somebody's eyeline. And even then, I remember accidentally standing in Daniel Craig's eyeline once and he just plowed right through me and, you know, didn't care. <laughs> it was, it was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, from, from a, it had a lot of value from, from that kind of, you know, um, 10,000 foot view of the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's almost straight up journalism at a certain point to where you just get to observe and process and then turn it into, I suppose your own interpretation only with yours. It was. It yeah. Was but when you're there, and but also like imagine you're a, you're a journalist who's allowed to go anywhere and observe anything because you're there at the pleasure you're serving at the pleasure of the guy who everyone else is serving at the pleasure of. So that's fair. It, yeah. It creates a kind of, um, um, you know, I mean, obviously you have to be respectful of this, of people's spaces and things. You don't want to charge around and, you know, make a nuisance of yourself, but it does create a kind of freedom to see everything that's valuable, very valuable. Now, Empty Man. Yeah. Let's, wow. let's, where do we start here? Um, because like before this week, I think what I find interesting is that there was a version of this interview that was going to be done to where like we were talking to you two, two uh, weeks ago and then the Texas storm hit and all 
shit hit the fan and we, we had to reschedule. But now this week, uh, we, we have an abundance of pieces kind of going up. We have our interview is going to go up. Film School Rejects just wrote a, a piece profiling the production of Empty Man. I believe Dread Central has another one that's up. All really great reads. Um, but at the time when I was prepping for it, the only thing that was literally out there was the announcement of the project, I believe, in The Hollywood Reporter in 2016, where you had partnered with Boom Studios, um, or you had been hired on, and 20th Century Fox was with Boom Studios at the time. And I just, I was wondering, how, how did this happen? How, how did you get signed on? How, wh- where do we start? All right, so <clears throat> you'll notice the time difference the, between the ending, the completion of AM 1200 and the beginning of The Empty Man was too long. Um, and a lot of that time was spent coming close to, you know, writing a lot, of, writing some scripts of my own, um, writing for hire, writing for projects that I was going to direct, most, most of which just never got made, you know, for the various, for all the reasons that movies don't get made. Um, and then also passing on a lot of stuff, you know, it's like you, you make a horror movie and people, if you're lucky, you start getting offers or at least if, if not offers, then at least, you know, asking for your consideration. Here's a project that's open. We'd like to talk to you about it if you're interested, that kind of thing. And I was just so dismayed by so many of them. There were a lot of the usual sort of, I can't tell you how many exorcist movies I read or, uh, possession movies and vampire movies and ghost haunting movies and like, and just, there were a couple that were vaguely interesting and I, but you know, by and large, I just wasn't really thrilled with a lot of the stuff I was being sent. And of course I wasn't being sent, you know, I was just a guy with a short film. I wasn't being sent the the cream of the crop. I wasn't getting sent the Aaron Sorkin scripts, you know? So, um, so I was trying to write my own stuff. And one of the people that that sent me things to consider was Ross Ritchie at Boom. I don't know how, I guess he had seen the, seen AM1200 somehow. And um, we had a couple of meetings and really liked the guy and, and got along well. It was just that none of the properties that he had at the time were kind of what I was looking for. And, and so we just kind of agreed to keep the communication open. And if something happened to get us both excited, then, you know, we go from there. So uh, one, uh, one day he sent me the empty man and I, I had never heard of it. I didn't really know anything about it. And, um, and I read it and, you know, Cullen is a very interesting writer and put together a, um, a very singular and strange, um, comic book experience. And I, that I didn't feel like I understood how to translate into a movie experience. There was something about it that, you know, there's a kind of, there's a certain sort of thing you can get away with in comics just by virtue of it being the medium that it is that don't like, you can say that in one panel on a comic, but I'm going to need 10 minutes to tee that up if we're going to really do this in a movie. So I, I didn't know how to do the comic as it was written, but I liked the title and I liked a lot of his broader concerns, like the stuff that he was thinking about around the margins were, um, were right. I mean, dead in line with stuff that I had been writing about and thinking about myself for years before and even written entire scripts about. So it felt like there was a harmony in, in, in um, intention, if not execution. So what was the intention that drew you to it? Like what can you, well, essentially can you the, primarily the idea of um, the communicability of thought, 
and the idea that a, of a meme, right? Of the idea of, I mean, a meme as probably as Dawkins originally meant it, not so much a little internet joke, you know, but the idea of a, that an idea, that an idea can um, spread throughout a population almost like a virus and it happens not because the idea is reasonable or passes the test of logic or rationality, but just because it has a certain inherent power and people's spiritual immune systems are ready to be, are ready to be overtaken by it. And so that it was fundamentally it was that concept that I felt like this is a, if I'm the virus, this is a good host. This comic book is a good host to kind of um, infect with this thing. So, uh, so I went to them and I said, um, you know, it's a cool comic. And if you guys really want to do a faithful adaptation of it, then you should ask somebody else because I, I, I wouldn't be able to service that. But if you, if you're willing to kind of let me riff on it and kind of um, fuse my concerns with with the what I think is in, at least in the world of the comic and kind of along the lines of what Colin was talking about, um, then I'd be very interested in that. And here's what I would do. And I gave them a pitch and including the opening, which was something I'd written as a short story like 10 years before. Um, and so they liked it. And so we ended up uh, setting it up at Fox with Mark Roybal, who was an executive at the time who really got it. Like he got, not only got, but encouraged and nurtured the kind of stranger, um, in, you know, intention. Because like, I, I went to them, what I said at the beginning was, if you guys want a Bloomhouse movie, that's not what I'm setting out to do. I just want to make sure everybody's really clear up front. This isn't a four quadrant Friday night, girls jumping in, hold on to your boyfriends kind of movie. It's, I mean, hopefully we'll have elements of that, but we're, we're, we're hunting bigger game than that. And there's room for all that. I love that stuff. If that's what you want, tell me now, because that's not where I'm going. And they said, no, that's not what we want. And so we started talking about Mulholland Drive and we started talking about, you know, I think I even foolishly brought up the swimmer. <laughs> let's do the oh horror. my god what a masterpiece yeah and i was like i would i now question the wisdom of telling people that you want to make the horror version of the swimmer <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time that was the kind of it was an exciting conversation because we were talking about pretty interesting weird woolly stuff three hour long meditations on guilt and stuff like that yeah, I mean, that's the thing that makes The Empty Man so interesting is that it's idiosyncratic. It's not attempting to, as you put it, kind of fit into one specific box. Now, it, it takes a lot of elements, and it is something that I do want to talk to you about, is that, um, you know, in modern horror, particularly when we're talking about stuff like, you know, Ari Oster's movies, you know, Midsummer, uh, Hereditary, you know, the the big rage these days is you know we're making these elevated films these these movies about tr it's all about trauma it's all about this and that and like you have elements of that but at the same time the thing that i loved about the empty man is that you weren't like you didn't shy away from pulp you didn't shy away from pulp influences detective novels i mean when we discussed it martin brought up stuff like weird tales and like old ray bradbury and hp lovecraft stuff and i i kind of wanted to talk to you about that a little bit of how you found the balance between making something that operated as a narrative while kind of fitting those more 
idiosyncratic, let's say idiosyncratic brush strokes in. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's all fair. I think, um, by the way, let me just mention that a lot of people walked out of seeing hereditary depressed, but not for the same reason I did. <laughs> when I saw, when I saw the movie, uh, we had been finished and wrapped and done and in the can. And I saw that ending and just about wilted, but yeah, it's a zeitgeist thing, I guess. I don't know. Um, it was certainly not intentional. If I'd known that that was going to happen, I, the ending, the empty man would not end the way that it does. But anyway, um, I find a lot of that stuff effective. I mean, hereditary is very, you know, certainly potent. Um, the experience, I mean, it's, 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 it's awful. Like when that, the scene is just, it's the worst thing I'd ever, I, I, I'll never forget the experience of watching that. It was really, really harrowing. And, um, there's, there's a place for that. I don't want to watch it again, but it's, um, <laughs> it's extremely strong. Right. Um, sure. And, but there is something, I don't want to talk about other people's movies because I, I'm, I'm going to say something I don't even agree with, but, um, but with, when you're trying to talk about serious things, the, the reason that, that I love genre and I think genre's ultimate um, main value is the way that you can talk about uh, fundamental, deep, important human stuff without being pretentious. Uh, it's like, it, it's, it's almost like a proof against self-importance or pomposity, or it's like, it's just a way to frame a, 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 a concept in, you know, in, um, in a way that makes it easier to go down. It's a spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. Right? I mean, it's like, you just, it's also more fun. It makes the, it makes, it makes engaging with bigger ideas more fun if it's done within the context of something that, that almost, you know, that thing where you have to, you know, trick your mind in your trick, your conscious mind into ignoring what your subconscious wants to be doing. There's a kind of, there's something about the ability of genre to do that. Now, of course, a lot of genre doesn't do that. A lot of genre is just pure pulp and that's all it is. And it's about the experiential, you know, the, the blood rush of, uh, and the thrill and excitement. And there's, that's great too. But I just don't, I, I would just be mortified if, if people, <laughs> if the movie was, was self-important. So I, I want to talk about stuff that I think is important and that I think is resonates on a deeper level, but I want to do it within the context of something that can just be, you know, fun. Yeah. It's, a, it, oh. it's, it's like one of those reasons that Romero is one of the greatest directors of all time is that you could watch Dawn of the Dead for the 50th time and you can sit there and go, it's about consumerism. It's about, race relations it's about all these and or you could just sit there and go but i just really like watching a zombie bite a man's hand off right yeah, yeah. i mean he he uh he he leaned into the kind of socio-political interpretations of his movies maybe a little more than i would have but he was such a fun kind of wooly guy that he could say almost anything and it was charming you know? yeah i think one of the cool things one of the things that stuck out to me because um it's funny that so much of this film is about, like you're saying, the communi uh, communicable um, nature of ideas, right, uh, and thought. And this was a kind of a, you know, a secret handshake film for us where Jacob told me and then a coworker at work, I just get this message on Google Hangouts and I'm, you know, doing my day job. He goes, 
bro, check out the empty man. And that's all he said. And, um, which, and he's a guy, he's like a man of few words, obviously. And so I said, like, okay, I'm going to check it out. Those are his words. That's fine with me. Yeah. And it, it, it was great. He's like, just check it out. He's like, call me, either call me Monday. I'm like, all right. So I watched it on the weekend and Jacob had been kind of telling me to watch it. And you know, it's something I like about that it, because it is so epic. You have a lot of, it's pulling out a lot of subgenres of horror, but not just horror. You know, like you said, detective fiction, there's creepypasta, you know, ring, uh, cursed media kind of feel at the beginning. And then you also have, for me, like a zombie scene out at the camp, you know, the, the, the fast zombie scene of 28 days later. And like, you get all these. So for me, it's like, you're saying like, you're getting your sugar and it's never not a fun ride, but you're getting these like really heady, these like really heady cosmic ideas. Um, and well, again, I, mean, I, I hope so. The, the, I had this book once called um, Classics and Trash, and I wish I knew how to, I wish I knew who'd written it. But on the cover was, um, I think it was Hamlet holding, holding uh, the skull and King Kong on top of the Empire State Building. And the idea was that there doesn't have to be a kind of bifurcation between these two things, that there is the kind of, on one hand, the sort of snobbishness of the, of the um, intellectual elites that's, that, that look down their nose at Titus Andronicus as though Shakespeare, how dare he wallow in the muck like that, you know? And then you have the kind of snobbishness on the other side, which is like anybody who's making a Friday night movie and has the character speak in more than one syllable at a time is somehow being snooty or pretentious. And there's a kind of sort of awfulness on both sides of that camp. And I always thought it would be, there's, why, can't we, why can't we have a rich, fun, um, whatever, you know, book, movie, whatever it is. There's no reason why you can't be talking about things that are essential and doing it in a way that's a rip-roaring good time. It's the John Waters continuum. It's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a Douglas Sirk movie, but mine's going to star Divine and Tab Hunter. <laughs> That's not the example that I would have thought of, but it's interesting now that you mentioned it. <laughs> now, you, you, exactly. <laughs> Odorama. Uh, yeah. But you, you brought up the intro, and I did want to ask you about filming the intro because it is, to kind of set up my first viewing of this movie, is somebody had passed me a screener of it, and said, you need to check this out. I was like, okay. I watched it at two in the morning and just, I, I gave myself the 20 minute rule to where I went, all right, if this keeps me up for 20 minutes, I'll keep going. If not, it's, it's getting turned off. And 25 minutes later, I believe it was when that intro ended and the titles came up, I went, what the, f what the fuck am I watching? Like, and uh, can you talk about crafting that? Because it's almost a mini movie unto itself that's incredible. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I, so the idea was that was, a, that was a short story that I had written a long time ago um, as a short story. But it, what it didn't have was the three-day framework. Um, and in fact, the first draft of the, the first couple drafts of the script didn't either. It was originally, uh, I think, a nine-page scene. And that was already on the long side for a cold open or a sting or whatever. But of course, remember the, the, you know, the script frame 1200 to 17 pages and the movie is 39 minutes. So some of the operating assumption is that if you're, um, if you're going to try, if you're going to make the attempt, 
succeed or not, if you're going to make the attempt to kind of try to grab people by the shoulders and sit them down and get them to pay attention and lock in lockstep with a character who's going through a kind of mysterious experience, you're going to have to take a little bit of screen time to get them to do it. And there's going to have to be some time to, you know, there's no such thing as silence or darkness if you're cutting all this like this super fast. So that's just the nature of this kind of thing. And you hope that you find the right balance between expediency and, you know, trying people's patience. But, and so initially the, the scene was the, the hikers um, hit the top of the mountain. There's a storm coming in. Paul gets found, get, gets down the cave. He gets found. He says, if you touch me, you'll die. They take him out. They seek shelter in the cabin. That night he whispers in Ruthie's ear. The next day he's gone. They find him at the bridge and the ending happens. That was the thing. Um, but Mark Roybal um, said, you know, we've got this three day pattern thing happening later. Shouldn't that be reflected in the opening? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose if you're, it's not a, it's not a wrong, you're not wronger than we expected. Is that okay? And he was like, yeah, that's great. Love that. And we were already <laughs> tell you how funny people are when they're going into production. We're already talking about a sequel at the time <laughs> and how each, each of the movies would, um, would open with this kind of the, the, a cameo of the whole movie, right? A little miniature but extended opening sequence. And I, I already had one planned out for it, which shows you how optimistic we were at the time. Um, but um, so, so that expanded it um, to include the sighting of the next day. So, that, you know, this the, the pattern of hear him, see him, um, feel him thing, where, you know, she blows into the flute that night and hears the footsteps and the. So, um, we shot it in Cape Town, and I want, we should have gone to Bhutan, but we couldn't, we didn't have the money, or somewhere, Nepal, Greenland, and somewhere where we could find the kind of geography that I was looking for. We, we went, we did end up going way, way up onto a mountain in, in South Africa called uh, Telcom Towers, and, and we couldn't find we, we couldn't find the location for it anywhere. Just nothing was kind of for the for the for the cabin. That was my, uh, primarily what we were looking for was where are we going to build the cabin? And finally, I realized we're not going to find this from the ground. We've been we've been schlepping everybody around in passenger vans and you know trying to find so it, it, this isn't working. So we got into a helicopter and scouted around in the middle of these mountain passes, and I found this one spot. And so everybody's writing down the G, the GPS and all of that to try to be able to figure out how to find it. And then they couldn't find it for a long time. And then they sent, it was crazy. They sent a guy out and he, he was gone for an entire day. And then he came back and he said, I think I found it. So we, we found it and we got, yeah, this is it. And we can't shoot here because there's no road. There's no way to get trucks or vehicles or build sets here. So, you know, one of the things, maybe one of the things you learn watching other people direct movies is when to strategically throw a fit. <laughs> I didn't throw it. Yeah. I, I'm not a I'm not a fit thrower, but I I allowed my displeasure to be known in a very calculated way, and I remember one of the producers coming up and were concerned that I had lost my temper, and I was like, no, no, just wait. And we gave it five minutes, and then they came back and said, well, we think we figured out a way to do it. I was like, oh, isn't that funny how that can work out sometimes? So we ended up building a road to get in there. And I'm glad we did. I mean, the location 
worked really beautifully. And um, that part of the sequence, I'm not, I'm not uh, displeased with. And the set, I mean, the production design that Craig um, Lathrop did was stunning. So, you know, I wish for some of the wider shots we'd been able to be in a more exotic location. But so we, that's what we shot for the first week. That scene in the cave. Sorry. The scene in the cave, it's interesting you say how much you love Alien because we had some serious space jockey vibes going on when we were talking about the film, you know? And I mean, is that obviously hope, somewhat intentional, I imagine? No, in fact, there's even a couple. I, I, I went a little overboard actually, but we, we that was a near miss, that scene. So the, the, the skeleton, I mean, the set, the, the cave set, I, I was, you know, every once in a while you're on it, you're, you know, when you, the stresses and the, and the, um, the unpleasantness of production, can often get ameliorated by walking onto a set like that and going, Jesus, we're really making a movie. I, I, that set was wonderful. Um, but the skeleton was, a. we came close to, I saw what was being done and had a panic attack because it was not uh, going to work. And so, so I got in touch with a really gifted um, uh, designer named Ken Bartlemay and I sent him a, f a picture of a painting by Beksinski called the flute player, or the horn player. I think it is. It's a it's a famous. Do you know the? Do you know? The, okay, so Beksinski's pretty famous. That's probably one of his more famous paintings, and it's always kind of haunted me. It's so weird. I don't even understand what I'm looking at, and that's what I wanted. I wanted something that looked like what? How can we? Pro I don't. I can't figure out what this is, and uh, and I wanted it to be larger than human size. There's a couple of little indications in there about what the ideas that those the multiple fingers and the larger than humanness hint at, but you know, I don't want to be too obvious about some certain things. Um, so I, so we got that design, I proved that. And then we sent it, we found this, this fabricator in, in Cape town who just did this unbelievably spectacular job, 3d printing it. And then in, in pieces and then sculpting on top of the 3d print and making new molds and, you know, each, and I mean, giving me 12 different options for how to, for the finish on the thing. I mean, it was just unbelievably great. And I wanted to bring it home with me at the end and it was going to cost $10,000 to ship it. And I just couldn't, couldn't do it. So it's still sitting in Cape Town somewhere, but there is a shot in that with the water drips that are coming down off the Cape going backwards and which is an intentional wink to alien. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, you know, I think that in general, the prologue is what most of my friends have recommended to mention. Like, oh my God, I think I texted Jacob. I'm like, I'm 20 some minutes in. I said, is the movie just now starting? He goes, oh, get ready, dude. And that was, it was just, I knew I was in the ballsiness of that longer <laughs> prologue. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, see, that's, that's the reaction that you hope to hear. Um, it's funny how angry it makes certain people. Like when you say, I didn't even see the main titles until 20 minutes into the movie. And you're like, so why is that a problem? And the thing that's interesting is people do that on television all the time. Like the show Fargo, very often you're halfway through the episode before the title comes on and, you know, raising Arizona did it and stuff. So it is interesting, the context, the kind of expectations that people have, depending on the context of what they're about to be engaged with 
if they don't get it served up in the way that they're expecting, then they get really pissed off. And uh, that's a valuable lesson. Anyway. Yeah, it's what a, gonna say? that weird like measurement of it because one of the main examples to me is always the departed where like you know you're 14 or whatever minutes into the movie and then all of a sudden leo's in jail and then boom it's the departed and you're like i just had this is like a whole prologue to a book that i just saw but i wondered on repeat viewings if it was like the difference in pacing to where like the empty man is is giving you that very slow, portentous kind of dread to where, you know, the part, the departed, like a lot of Scorsese's pictures is just that number one with a bullet cocaine head rush to where you're like, Oh shit, that's right. I'm watching. This is the name of the movie that, that that's what we're doing here. That's right. No, you're right. And it could have been, a, you know, I make no claims to the gamble having worked. Um, it could have been a giant mistake to expect people to sit still for that long in that kind of experience. If the movie did, if it was a Scorsese movie and there was a, you know, a sped up dolly shot and a cut every three seconds and the thing was really on fire and electric and then the title came up 20 minutes later, you're right, probably nobody would have cared or it would have been part of the, the excitement of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it might've been a gross, mis a gross overestimation of people's patience to, to, to structure this thing that way. I just, you know, I knew it was a gamble. Um, and sometimes you come up snake eyes and sometimes you don't, you know, so we'll, we'll see what time tells, I guess. So you talk about, you know, that the, the, the prologue is a separate short story that you kind of had in mind. Where did the James Badge Dale stuff, like where that ends and then the James Badge Dale story begins. Was that also a separate story? Because as you kind of put it, you know, the empty man itself, the comic book is just, it's almost like a reference point for you or a host for you to infect with your own ideas. Um, I wondered where that came from. Where was the genesis of the actual detective portion of the picture? Well, I, um, it was partly because of some things that I'd been writing and not been able to get made. Um, so it was a way to kind of um, re-explore some ideas that I was still obviously hadn't worked out of my system yet. Um, and also because I like the kind of lockstep first person um, structure that, you know, so many of my favorite movies have. And, and, and I've, I've written, I've realized I've written that way since I was a kid. I mean, even stuff that I look back on now with great shame and hope that no one ever uncovers um, was all, <laughs> was all pretty much like there's one character in this who's in every scene and carries the audience through it. And um, I'd like to do something different than that, just to do something different. But for whatever reason, whenever I sit down to, you know, write a story, that's what usually comes out. And I think it's, um, you know, it's obviously connected to um, my lifelong dying passion for Angel Heart. And um, yes, for, for most Cronenberg movies, um, there's kind of the early Cronenberg movies, like, Certainly, Videodrome and and The Brood and um, The Dead Zone. Like, there's something about the kind of the the close upness of being with one person and charting him through this experience that I that I and and having it have you know be be sad 
is ultimately, I guess, just, you know, you, you don't often consciously know why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, I knew that the only thing I knew, the only macro thing I was aware of, because I'll tell you the idea of him, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming people aren't going to watch this if they haven't seen it. So I'm the, even the, the possibility of him, of James being a Tulpa didn't come up until I was in like the third draft, second draft. It wasn't part of my initial pitch. Mm. Um, I don't think. It wasn't part of the idea when I first approached them. I, it might have been there from earlier than that. But I do remember having the experience of going, uh-oh, that's too good an idea not to use, but it's going to create a lot of problems. And so, so I had to do a lot of surgery and try to figure out how to make sure that, I, you know, the, the thing with, with ambiguity, the, thing, the movie trades in ambiguity for better or worse and turns out largely for worse but but that's just the nature of what it was and so the thing with ambiguity though is that you have to be really careful about it you have to use it surgically and know that uh, it's not just an excuse to be non-committal you have to really know what you're saying and then obfuscate it in just the right sorts of ways so that it creates space for an audience to engage in in that particular way so the only thing I knew was that the only, I, I can't make this work unless there's the possibility of reading it a couple of different ways. And what are the ways to read it? And so that I wanted there to be a sort of a Mobius strip structure between the larger um, Pontifex cult uh, boogeyman meme stuff and James's personal story. And so that whichever way you looked on the Mobius strip, you could question which one was true and which one wasn't and to what extent and how are they connected and, how to make that connection, um, you know, smooth and invisible, where they track in on themselves. And so a lot of that came down to um, every time there was something that could be read concretely one way, I had to figure out, I had to plant a seed so that it could be flipped on its head if you chose to look at it a different way. But other than that, I just was following my instinct. You know, that's, that's kind of all you can really do. Yeah, I feel like when we, when I watched it and talking to Jacob about it, even before we did the podcast, just chatting about the movie, it was the love letter to the things that he and I, like Angel Heart's top five for me, and, and he has a tattoo of Videodrome on his arm. And so, really? like, you just you want to hold it up. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's small the, on the screen. The, t the TV, and putting the head into the TV. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was one of those things where I said, oh, this, this filmmaker is, loves all the same things I love. And so it's funny you were talking about how an audience takes your film because everything you're saying that didn't work for other people worked for like, us tenfold. You know, it's one of those things where I feel like one of those rare idiosyncratic experiences you're watching a film where you're on the same wavelength of like, this is all, I, you know, this guy's giving me everything I want, all my favorite things from these movies. And that kept kind of the same for you, Jacob. Um, well, yeah, if you evoke Videodrome, I'm at least <laughs> going to give you three stars, probably. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, but if I, if I was really, if I, go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say, but it's, it, it's all in step with what you're kind of talking about is that like the whole idea of like, when do thoughts or beliefs become a disease? When do they infect? The, the other people when does that go too far like that's like when i i will never forget seeing videodrome for the first time and just watching it and being like oh wow that's this just reshaped what 
I thought movies could do, you know, in 89 minutes or whatever it was. But it's a lot of the same ideas are there in The Empty Man, too. It's like, at what point does at what point do you give yourself over to these things that are kind of floating around in the ether around you and infecting you without you even sometimes knowing it yeah and what happened and where does where do people have to be so uh for their immune system to be susceptible to it because the that's another thing i mean a video drama also seems to indicate a society that's ready in a really disturbing way I remember when, when you, when, uh, in 1982 in the, or it was either late 81 or early 82, um, Universal had a little kiosk that they set up at shopping malls with running trailers for all of their upcoming movies. And whenever my mom went shopping, I would just sit and watch these trailers on a loop. And they had E.T. and The Thing and Dark Crystal and Videodrome. Jesus. Conan. <laughs> Um, 82 was a good year. Um, maybe Conan, that was universal. I'm not sure if the trailer was on that reel or not, but anyway, so I watched those trailers, you know, so many times <laughs> that, um, I, I lost track, but the video drone trailer in the thing was really the one that, that had most of my attention, but video drone just, I couldn't wrap my head around what the hell it was. It was really, really uh, memorable. And so that pointed to something which is hopefully anytime you set out to make a movie, um, it gets released in 3000 theaters and you make a hundred million dollars opening weekend and, it go, and everybody loves it and it wins all the awards. Obviously that's what people, what everybody hopes for, but you can't expect that um, at all, frankly. It's like winning the fucking lottery when that happens. And so if your choices are really, let's listen to all of the, the worst instincts of the marketeers and the people that are in the business of this thing that don't have any particular, don't place a premium on the value of this, of this product in any way except as a product and homogenize it and flatten it out and shorten it and deliver it for you know easy consumption and then watch it vanish and disappear or stick to your guns and fight for something to make make it as weird and unique as to you as you can possibly make it um run the risk of alienating a lot of people but also stand a chance of being picked up and embraced by a small passionate group of people who will carry it forward in time that's always the way i'm going to lean and there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure um, after the first test screening to chop this down to 89 minutes and remove all the, all the Stephen Root, get rid of the opening prologue and streamline it to 80 to that. And I was like, by the grace of God escaped that fate. Um, because I mean, I resisted it. Somebody went and did a cut like that. And thankfully, it was such a catastrophe that uh, that it was, um, you know, it was kind of like the studio went, well, it's a disaster one way, it's a disaster another, fuck it, just take it. You know, it's like, do it your way. Um, because they were out of time and they weren't spending any more money. So by default, I got final cut, thank God. But, um, but you know, all of my, not all, but most of my favorite, most cherished movies have been movies that didn't that weren't accepted when they first came out, that 
that were either rejected by audiences or destroyed by critics. I mean, there's there's so many that you know, and, and a, it would be foolish to compare the Empty Man to to any of them. But it does it does help me sleep at night knowing that people hated the thing and they hated Blade Runner and they hated the Adventures of Baron Munchausen and they you know like so many of my near and dears angel heart like it was just destroyed when it first came out so i can accept it's I, it, it makes it easier to accept when you're in company like that now <clears throat> i did want to ask uh how james badgedale kind of came to be in the movie because i mean he has such a weird career i mean we just brought up the departed and there's a guy who's literally worked with scorsese and he's been in you know five hundred thousand dollar texas made like movies about like militiamen you know with standoff at sparrow creek and i mean he he'll do it all so i wondered how you came to love him and how he came to be in the empty man I, um, we were, we needed an actor and one of the first people that occurred to me was Badge because I've been wanting to work with him for years. I, I, um, he's one of the few people I can think of where I saw him and went, I really want to work with that guy. And I wasn't in a position at the time to do it. I didn't have anything for him. But when I did, he was the first guy that occurred to me because of um, a show called Rubicon that was on AMC in 2010, I think. And there was something about the nature, I mean, just the nature of the show. It's this kind of um, uh, strange, quiet conspiracy, kind of sort of a throwback to the parallax view, kind of, um, you know, uh, paranoia. That kind of, it felt like an Ellen Pakula show, you know. And there was something about Badge and his ability to own, occupy a scene where he was the only character in it and remain interesting just watching him think and do nothing and ponder, right? Because um, he spends a lot of that show alone. There are scenes he does with other characters, but a lot of it is, is him alone thinking about everything that he's been going through. And the fact that he could do that and, and remain riveting um, said that some spoke to me about what his abilities are as an actor and, and just as a person, as a, as a nervous system. And so, um, obviously the studio was hoping for a bigger name and then there was talk about various other people at one point or another. Some people came close, some, uh, some other people were almost in it and fell out because they were, you know, scheduling conflicts or, or whatever. And so finally we got down close to the wire and, and Denise Shamian, my casting director, who's also a big fan of James's, she and I both kind of just kept you know, every couple of days, James Batchdale, James Batchdale. And the studio liked him. There was no question they liked him a lot. They just wanted, obviously, the insurance of a, um, of a bigger name. But when that didn't look like it was going to happen, one of the benefits of working with a studio is they don't have to have Brad Pitt in order to finance the movie. They can get it financed anyway. And so they decided to trust us and trust James. And, I mean, I couldn't be happier with his performance. I think he's wonderful in it. Um, I've had people say that, I've had people say that this is the part they liked him in most, which I thought I, I took as a compliment, not only to our working relationship, but also to his commitment to the movie and to the character. I mean, he really, it's funny. James is a, he's a not the person that you, who he is individually is very different from a lot of the characters that he plays. And um, 
that process of getting to know them and getting to figure out like, okay, you always want to find out what somebody's pressure points are. Like, how am I going to, you're trying to get a sense of how somebody's going to be to work with and all that. That was, uh, it was fascinating. I, I loved every second of it. Um, I remember he called me, he was, he was doing a, uh, firefighter movie for Joe Kaczynski at the time we were getting ready to, we'd started shooting actually. So he didn't have a lot of time to come down and, you know, hang out and rehearse or anything like that. He, he called once from the mountaintop <laughs> in some faraway location while I was in Cape Town and the phone wasn't really working, but we just kind of, you know, just rapped on the phone for a few minutes and I told him what I said about Rubicon. And so I think that gave him a sense of the type of thing I was looking for, the sort of the space occupying that I wanted him to do. Um, but he showed up ready to go. He got there a day before we started his first day of shooting, which was in the lobby of the Pontifex Institute when he's picking up the questionnaire. And um, there's just something about the, and the thing I also, that was essential to that character, particularly in a character that, in a, in a movie and a character that is so solemn so much, so many so much of the time. So um, sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sad story. Um, you, I mean, I don't think there's a movie that can survive without a sense of humor, but I think particularly in a movie like that, you need some kind of levity somewhere. And he found, he and I together found the spots where a little bit of lift um, helps carry you through a lot of the rest of the story. So he was funny in, some, in, in exactly the ways that I hoped he would be. I mean, it's funny. up in San Francisco, man. <laughs> yeah, it was originally Haight-Ashbury. Um, <laughs> and in, and uh, he, he didn't, he thought that it would be funny, San Francisco would be funnier. So we did a version of San Francisco and a version of Haight-Ashbury for every take. And at the, by the time it got to the end, I was like, yeah, you're right. San Francisco's fun here. But <laughs> there's, a, there's an energy he brings. It's funny that you say that was the first scene you shot with him because we mentioned it on the podcast that he does this thing. It's not even maybe even on, in the, on the page, but the way he, you know, she, he's like, how long have you been here? She goes, we've been here longer than time. And he does this like, okay, cool. You know, he has that, he's us, right? Kind of looking at the situation like, okay, weirdo. And he communicates that. But it's funny you mentioned Blade Runner as well, because thinking about that film, about a person who's had memories basically injected into their brain that aren't their own, you know, and to have that mixture of sometimes a blankness when it needs to be, because they've been filled, and the kind of terrifying of realizing you, you're a shell, and you are a tulpa, like a replicant in that way, yeah, well, you know? Well, or, or, and how much of it is by choice, is the other, yeah. the other question. I mean, I, one of the things I told, you know, sometimes you tell actors things because they need to hear it. And sometimes it's because it's the truth. Um, the truth, the fundamental truth of his nature in the movie and the nature of the movie is, is open to debate because the concept of the movie is, it's almost like what it's, it's a, you know, what's trying to reflect, there's, there seems to be a tendency in the world that um, for people to create their own truth. They want to live in a world where, they, where objectivity is, is um, passe and reality is this fungible thing that, that can flex depending on who's doing the interpreting. And this movie, and so part of my feeling about it, it's not that the movie is meant to be this way. It's just one of the things I was thinking about was, okay, let's see what that would be really like. I mean, it'd be a pretty harrowing experience, I think. Um, and so some, somewhere down in there, you have to be talking about denial. You have to be talking about um, the kind of, a sort of self-induced psychosis. So 
what Badge and I talked about just for how to for him to play how to make how to play certain scenes was whether you agree with this or not. Um, you're the only one in the movie that's not a tall poet, right? Interesting. So he was the way just as as a method to approach a scene, and you can I, I think if you really pick it apart, you can understand how that would have some value. Like you can't play a tulpa, but you can play a guy who is so deeply in denial that he's fabricated a false reality around himself, right? So that's what he ended up, that was his trajectory through it. And to other, and to other actors, sometimes in the same scene, you say, you're playing it like, you're playing it like he's, you know, you've never met him before. Because, you know, even though you have this history together, this is the first time you're actually meeting. So that, it just kind of makes it for interesting dynamics when you're, when you're trying to figure out how to play a scene. But whether or not those interpretations are true is entirely up to the viewer. Well, and it kind of fits into the movie's larger themes regarding uh, not, like being almost through a grieving process and depression and everything to where like, the thing that struck me about it beyond its idiosyncratic structure, let's say, and the way that you approach certain scenes is the fact that like at the end of the day, the empty man is almost an entire movie about whether or not you lose hope in both like yourself, the world, everything, because there's these, the, the vessels let's say are these guys who are essentially contemplating suicide and I wondered, or even, you know, in the first Vessel's uh, kind of position has attempted it at once. I mean, there's a reason they show all the cuts and everything on their, their arm. But I just wondered, like, if you were ever, I, you had to have been nervous about bringing a movie that involved such what almost feels like very personal and dark material to a studio like this and being like, yeah, 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 this is what it hinges around. It's fine. Yeah, I, I remember our uh, assistant editor, um, Adrian, who'd been working in Los Angeles setting up our cutting room and everything before, while we were still shooting. One of the first things I, uh, he said to me when I came back was he looked at me like he'd smelled something bad and said, why did you make this for a student? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, uh, the answers to that question are rather obvious, but the intention is, is certainly... Um, it's the, the meaning behind the question is very clear, which is, yeah, this isn't normal studio affair. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, all I can say is they bought it. I mean, yeah. Uh, um, either. I mean, it's, you know, I presented the movie as it is. I mean, the, the movie that I pitched is the movie that it, that we made. So it's not like I, there was no subterfuge or, or, um, <laughs> you know, there was no waving of a red cape while I was doing something over there. Um, I guess maybe some of it is that those ideas have more impact uh, or they, not more impact, that sounds self-aggrandizing. Um, they affect you in a different way when you're watching them performed than they do when you're hearing about them or you're reading them on paper, maybe. Um, sure. I mean, most horror movies, most, most horror movies, even, you know, good, bad, and different, they're, they, if you just state out what they're t dealing with, they're, they're pretty grim, awful stuff. I mean, that's kind of the idea. So I don't think it ever occurred to us that we were doing that we were going to alienate people for that reason. 
I think what I was worried about, or not worried, I didn't even worry because I just knew it was going to happen. If I was worried, I would have done something different. But, but I just, I knew that there was a degree of, um, of intellectual interrogation that was going to put off a lot of people who weren't into that kind of experience, who signed up for something that was a horror movie. Now, I also think that if somebody like A24 had made this movie, they would have known how to market it. Yeah, 100%. You know? So um, they would have embraced the unusualness of it, you know, but in a way that the studio just doesn't know what to do with stuff like that. Now, before we get to kind of the, let's say, mishandling that's occurred with your movie, um, I did want to ask about one last element, and that's Stephen Root. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask the same question. <laughs> I, I I need to I need to know because like he has one of the greatest bodies of work of like any actor, um, and I just wanted to know how he came to the project because he's he's that scene in the Pontifex Institute or or set piece. I I refer to a lot of them as as just your movie almost moves entirely in these these very contained episodic set pieces that I love. It's it's amazing. Um, but that whole set piece with him and the speech about the void and staring back into it and how we, we sometimes the, the, the repetition, uh, can rob something of meaning. Like I was just, that was the one where I was like, I really liked the movie. And then that occurred and I was like, well, <laughs> this was clearly just made for me. Um, but I wanted to know, how did we come to Steven Root? How did that occur? That's really gratifying to hear because I, that's my favorite. I have two favorite scenes in the movie. And, um, and I remember having this discussion with my uh, co-editor, like this is the scene that's either going to, uh, in, like the studio is going to demand we cut it out and it's going to infuriate people, but other people are going to say it's their favorite scene in the movie. And I think, you know, they always say that if you have something that's that potentially polarizing and maybe, maybe you're over the target somehow. But um, so I did not have anybody in mind when I wrote it. Um, I usually don't. Uh, it's, it's hard for some, for some reason. I very seldom have an actor in mind when I'm thinking, but um, for itself, the guy is a phenomenon. Um, the, any, the fact that he could do office space and then no country for old men. I mean, the guy is just unbelievably talented and, and has access to a kind of a deep, deep, deep wellspring of just human experience inside of him. And he's able to just tap in. Whenever you have a character actor, I mean, the, 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 the hope of a character actor is that they're able to play a broad range. The reason why actors a lot of times want to be character actors is because their, their range isn't as narrow as, to, as required of a leading man. They're able to kind of branch out, but very few people can dip in and out of broad comedy and high drama the way that Stephen can. So he was always in my, in my Rolodex of, you know, actors that I wanted to work with. And I think, I don't remember if I brought him up or if Denise did, but um, at one, one of us brought him up and it was instantly like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, Stephen, let's see if we can get him. And thankfully he was available and he read the script and he liked it. And he showed up to shoot that scene 24 hours before uh, we shot it. So he was like, he was jet lagged. He'd had three hours sleep on the plane. I mean, the guy is a <laughs> trooper. 
I managed to, you know, we, he, he managed to stay awake through our, through our welcome dinner. And then the next day shows up and does that, that scene. And, um, you know, he couldn't have been more, um, what I was looking for. It's just as far as his, 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 some, on some level, I'll give myself this much. The cadences and the tempo of that dialogue are inherent uh, in the writing. But boy, did he pick up on it and run with it. There's, in particular, the second scene when he says the, the, the scene about, you know, um, the child's game and the, you say your name enough times it becomes gibberish. That, hearing that dialogue for the first time, it was a very peculiar experience because it sounded exactly the way that I had had it in my head when I wrote it. And that doesn't often happen. And usually, you know, not, not, not even usually, but very often when you, when you write and direct, I've found um, if you give the actors space to kind of come up with their own thing, they'll, they'll surprise you. And they, they read things and they'll find line readings that you never would have thought of. And it's kind of fresh and interesting and unique. And other times it just, it's got to sound a certain way because it just does. And Stephen just, whatever it was, we never discussed it. He just naturally intuitively picked up on where the rises and falls were, you know, where the stresses were, where the, where the accented words were. And it was such a joy. And so that, apart from the fact that I feel like there's, that scene is as close to a thesis statement as there is in the movie, but the way that he performed it, and the way his, what his energy is, and the way that Badge is feeding off of him, is, and the quietness and the subtlety, make that my, you know, one of my two favorite scenes in the movie. What's the other, real quick, while we're... Yeah, you beat me to it. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta know the other one. Well, there are other, I mean, there are others I like for different reasons. I mean, the camp sequence, obviously, is uh, worked out the way that I wanted it to. But the thing that, there's a, there's a specific reason why this scene. So um, we had a really a, a lovely actress who I really wanted to play this part, um, turn it down because it didn't look like much on paper. I was, I was like, you're not seeing what, I, what I'm intending. Like, yes, on paper, it doesn't look like much. But when we get the vibe right, it's gonna be memorable. And that's the scene with the nurse when he goes to the hospital at the end, when he's talking to the nurse behind the counter. Um, Working with her, the, the one that we did get, she's wonderful, and I would, couldn't be happier with her. She's great. But um, she didn't take much prodding to pick up on, oh, okay, we just go really quiet here and, we just get, and, and play the pauses and play the oddness of it and just let the scene start sort of quotidianly. It's just an exposition scene at the beginning, and then it gradually turns into something else, and it's all because of the acting. And um, so that's the other one that just where the... It's it unexpectedly the mood changes, and that's what I like about it. If I could, my other favorite scene is your bridge scene with the kids. Oh yeah, uh, just because like I couldn't figure out how the hell you shot it, and you got that color, like it's just so otherworldly. Oh, well, they, I'll tell you, they, on any on any given day, that would be my my choice for number two as well. That that particular sequence worked out. Um, so we were originally going to build, we couldn't shoot on the, on the actual old chain of rocks bridge at night. It just wouldn't be feasible. Um, you can't really light it. Um, you can't, it, it, it would be unbelievably difficult. We probably would have, we would have needed two weeks to shoot that scene just because of dealing with wind and weather and noise and all of that. 
crap. So, um, so we were going to build it in Cape Town. Obviously, the real bridge is a mile long, so we weren't going to build the whole bridge, but we were going to build about, I think the original plan was 300 feet of it. And we couldn't find a stage big enough anywhere to do it. And um, we talked about doing it in the parking lot but at, at Cape Town Studios, but the Cape Doctor, which is a wind that comes through there, it was so unbelievably harsh that it, it made no sense. We did build the, the chain link bridge in that parking lot and the wind, we were adding our own wind anyway, so it didn't matter. But, but the chain of rocks we couldn't do. So we, we had to find a stage we could build it in and suddenly our 300 foot set became 200 feet and then 100 feet and then we didn't have any height. So what we ended up with was like 75 feet or maybe 100 feet of the bridge with about six feet of the cross support beams on one side. So it was, wow. it was a tiny, tiny little fraction of what, of what it was supposed to be. Um, and so of course it became a green screen job and I mean, it was going to be a green screen job anyway. I just thought that we would have more of the actual set, um, to work with than we did, but it turned out we didn't really need it because the effects turned out, uh, very well. I love the way that it looks and the performances are all really good. And the tenor of the, the feeling of the scene, the ambience of the scene, you know, there's a lesson I learned. Um, <laughs> well, we can get it. That, that leads into the mistreatment of it. But essentially, if I had this experience to do over, when I was summoned to the lot to screen the movie for the executives because they needed to see the movie now, and we weren't even finished shooting, um, we had you know storyboards and schematics and filling in gaps for stuff that wasn't finished, and the movie was two hours and forty five minutes long, and it was like it was still this shaggy thing that was trying to be born. That bridge scene was together and didn't change much from that point forward. It, I, I tightened it a little bit here and there, but basically that was the scene. If I had just said we're not ready yet, but here's this scene, I think the attitude at the studio would have been a lot different. But instead, I didn't think about doing that. I just screened the whole, I said, okay, here's the whole Megilla. It's, it's still a work in progress. And it's amazing how, <laughs> it's surprising um, how um, unsophisticated top executives at movie studios can be about looking at working, works in progress. It's shocking, actually. So there you go. Don't show your works in progress to anybody. That's yeah, a good... Oh, I, I, I love that scene too because I think you're, you're again playing with with the tropes of that kind of scene like this is also an exposition scene right you would see in a film like what does the curse mean but they you present it in this way that goes down so easy and it also has that tone right Jacob just like that that otherworldly tone that kind of it could have been kids on a super pretty bridge and just kind of talking and kind of yucking it up but it doesn't have any of that it's very like dangerous i don't know I, that's great that's and i you know what were you gonna say no i was gonna say i have to agree but my brain also trailed off because as you were talking about don't ever show works in progress i was thinking about that old hemingway quote where he just simply said don't ever let anyone read a first draft and then i thought about i wonder what it was like what it would have been like if ernest hemingway had to go like deal with fox studio executives like show us your first draft how would that how would that meeting have gone <laughs> yeah not too well i don't think um he probably would have shot himself a lot earlier than he did 
Yeah. <laughs> or like when Sam Pickin, whatever, I can't remember what movie it was, but whenever Sam Peckinpah, I think it was Major Dundee, the legend goes that Sam Peckinpah actually pissed on the screen after watching the studio's cut of it because he, he was so, well, A, he was so drunk, but B, <laughs> B he was so displeased right. and drunk. And so Sam Peckinpah. What a Peckinpah thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Classic <laughs> Peckinpah. But uh, let's yeah. just add, let's go, no, no go, go, go. I was going to say, let's just ask this question. Uh, you go first, but then I'll ask. Uh, okay. Well, I was just going to say that you were mentioning about the bridge scene and the idea was, I just wanted to address something that I've heard some people say, and I, I think it's, all criticism is fair, right? I mean, there are people who feel about things the way that they feel. and There's no right or wrong to it. And I certainly hope I have room to improve, fuck's sake, because if I didn't, I might as well die now. Um, but there is a degree to which the movie is trying to talk about the, the nature and the power of the trope. And the why is it that certain things are able to stick in your mind and don't they certain they need a certain kind of structure and certain kinds of rules and so all of that the idea of how to infect somebody with an idea almost the, the whether or not it needs a generic trope in order to take root is kind of what i'm trying to talk about now you can't really talk about that without also engaging in some generic tropes so it's like it's kind of a it's a, it's maybe self-defeating, but anyway, it's not that I didn't, it's not that I wasn't aware that there are, that these are kind of, um, you know, observable cliches, but it's like, there's a degree, there was a point to that, which is that I think maybe those cliches are cliches for a very interesting reason. I, I think it comes, it comes across really well. You know, I, I think that, cause like, again, I, I, it's like, wow, this is a really like, it's not your normal, you're playing with the trope. And I know you have your question too, Jacob, but I think that, we are also talking about the film that it is the delivery systems for ideas that you have a creepypasta kind of how kids talk. Then you have a giant like church religion and like how, like how we are organized around a piece of information. Like sometimes it's like, Oh, is it like, you know, telling stories back in the alley or is it a giant multinational corporation? You know, yeah. um, that's really fascinating. That's great. Yeah. Jacob, sorry. No, my question was just, I was simply gonna, just going to transition to the last part of the interview and say what the fuck happened. Uh, because that is that is really, I mean, let's face it, this movie, uh, to call it even like a troubled release feels like underselling it. It's just, it, it got no, dumped. It feels, like, it feels record-breaking. Um, it's... it's um, there have been, so there have been, um, you know, it's a story, it's a tale as old as Hollywood. The, the, the executive that greenlit the movie gets fired or, or moves, whatever changes, the regime changes, right? Um, so fundamental to the movie being pushed through the sausage factory that is a major Hollywood studio is someone on the inside who's advocating for it, right? Um, we had, there was Mark Roybal, uh, there was another Mark Weinstock. There was um, several people in different departments, from marketing to production to, to distribution, that were uh, fans of the movie and, and 
wanted to see it get made. And so essentially what a green light is in Hollywood, at least in my experience, is just a, an absence of a red light. It's like, it just makes it through the system because nobody says stop. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it makes it far enough, then you're shooting, then, oh, I guess we had a green light. So the people that were involved in no, no one saying stop suddenly weren't there halfway through production. And so our advocates on the inside were, were gone. And that left us, um, you know, you would think, there's no sense to why this is the case, but, but essentially that left us in a, in a, not necessarily hostile yet, but indifferent environment. And then when the thing, um, you know, when they forced a test screening before it was ready, um, I didn't want a test screening. I hate test screenings. I've been suspicious of the whole test screening process. I think there's enormous value in screening the movie for an audience and feeling the room and watching the backs of their heads. But as far as like having, you know, high school dropouts fill out cards and tell you where the movie should end, I, I have, I see no value in that whatsoever. No positive value. <laughs> it's, it's enormously negative potentially. So, <clears throat> I didn't think we want, I didn't want a test screening. I didn't, uh, um, and I knew what was going to happen, but they, you know, and I, before we even did the test screening, I sent the, the executive who'd come in to replace our previous one. I sent him a clip from the Terry Gilliam from the 12 monkeys documentary, the hamster factor mm -hmm. where Gilliam tells the story about this test screening where, where he and the producer and the, and the editor and everybody, went to this test screening and they and they were like that went really well they could feel it. like yeah people seem to be really into it and then the cards come back and they're like what the fuck the scores are miserable so there was a disconnect between what the experience was and the thing and, and i sent that to him and said here's why here's one of the reasons why i just don't trust this process and it turns out that's exactly what happened <laughs> um in 12 monkeys case you know they released it and they went on and made a whole bunch of money which is not uh, what happened with us unfortunately but but that experience of feeling the room, I took the people I was that we were working with, we after the screening, we all felt like that went pretty well. Like that certainly better than a lot of us expected it to, because it was still two hours and thirty-five minutes. We hadn't we hadn't been able to really distill it down yet. It was rough. Um so I remember feeling, wow, relieved. And then the cards came in and we were fucked because the card the, the numbers were low. We had some very passionate advocates that really liked the movie. We had some people who hated it. And we had some people that didn't even seem to speak English. It was very bizarre. There's some, <laughs> there were some comments that were just truly uh, um, Baroque. But so that, didn't, that doesn't help. When something like that happens, obviously, then the attitude of the studio, as much as you would think, again, that people have been through this process, they know how sort of unscientific and, and uh, untrustworthy this process really is it you can't undo you can't unring the bell it's like they just they've determined it's a loser and so we kept working and kept working and then these other parties went off and made this other cut and i saw it and said that's a career killer i'll take my name off of this if this is what you go with and they screamed that and it scored even worse so thankfully um they ended up just we ended up faulting to my cut. And in the meantime, I was still tightening and shortening and shortening. And then there came a period where we had been at it so long that the, um, that the kind of tax incentives that come from South Africa were set to expire. And so the studio said, 
we have to finish right now. You have to pencils down, you know, stop trimming. You have to finish it now. So that's what happened. Um, and we, it was a mad rush. You know, you're not getting any more money. You're not getting any whatever, but just finish the movie right now. So that's what happened. And then it um, sat and then the Disney takeover started. The, the Disney takeover, I think at that point was in the air. We kind of knew it was coming and what that would portend. Like even the best case scenario, it meant we were gonna sit on a shelf because it was gonna take almost a year to figure out all of the financial, you know, legal part of the takeover. Um, and then, but I was like, what are the odds Disney as a, is gonna have a different attitude toward this thing than Fox does, <laughs> like zero. So it just was like a waiting game. And then finally they, they dumped it. You know, it came out in over 2000 screens, like 2,500 empty screens in the middle of a pandemic like with a trailer that wasn't, didn't reflect the movie and was released a week before the film came out. So I don't know that I've ever heard of an example of a, um, of a infanticide quite like that. I, I mean, I've seen examples of movie of studios that hate a movie and just treat it badly, but I have, this one feels like a uh, uniquely um, harsh example of it. Um, and you know, what are you gonna do? You can't force people, that's, that, that's, you know, that's the old thing about, even if you did technically have Final Cut, you can't force them to release it if they don't want to. So they just didn't like the movie. Well, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, man. You have no idea. <laughs> No, I, I do want to say that That's awesome. that we I we were you know planning out this this season and I I just told Jacob I said let's fucking do Empty Man I said let's just do it now I said like I said this film is going to be something if it's not today it's going to have a huge audience and we should get in now and I do believe that um, honestly and I we were like we should champion this movie I'm a filmmaker too I said we should champion this film and get behind it so. Um, and you have, you have fans out there. It means yeah, we, a lot to hear. I really appreciate it. We pushed the legend of Billie Jean for you. The legend of Billie Jean is now season two of Secret Handshake for the empty man. So congrats. We don't, Sorry, we don't, we don't move episodes haphazardly. This was a serious, <laughs> a serious like, decision. Yeah. Helen Slater is now just really waiting for us to return her call. <laughs> Poor Helen Slater. I'll make it up to her. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. I can't tell you how much it means to know that it, despite everything, it's, it's managed to kind of poke up through the cracks like a weed, you know, You've found some sunlight. Yeah, and I think if anything, this week with all the articles and our interview and everything is, is just the first bit of evidence that this movie is just going to be rediscovered for years to come. And I mean embraced and championed by people who just get on its wavelength um because it's a unique one you know for all of the as you put it like kind of messing with cliches and tropes and playing with pulp and everything i mean it's still there's nothing quite like the empty man and i, I it's why i watch movies that's awesome man. thank you it's you know it's funny a uh, ravenous was kind of the, the start of my relationship with fox and then I ended up having such a similar experience to where, to the point where, you know, the studio clearly didn't, you know, they made something that they didn't care for or understand. And so they just did whatever the, you do, whatever studios do when they have that kind of situation. And yet the movie hopefully sparks some sort of a 
uh, renaissance and it, it just it finds fans other you know in other ways and um, it wouldn't have done that if it hadn't survived the the attempts to um, strangle it in its crib so I'm grateful even though the release isn't what any of us hoped for at least the movie is what it is maybe somebody will pick up a blue you know do a physical release because right now they're not planning on it. but um, you know, and then hopefully, yeah, it'll carry forward. I mean, at least if it gets even a fraction of Ravenous's, you know, audience later, I'll be happy. I love that movie so much. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so good. All right, well, thank you so much, David. This has been amazing. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Thank you. And uh, again, we my love your movie. <laughs> my absolute pleasure, guys. I can't, I can't wait to hear it. And I'm going to go uh, try to catch up on my, uh, on my episodes of Secret Handshake. <laughs> all right we look forward to it uh have a great night man we look forward to talking to you again sometime about even more movies and watching whatever the hell else you have up your sleeve it'll be fun man all right look forward to it take care all right yeah, you take too. care thank you bye-bye